Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Karen Price. Karen's a clinical GP and a past practice owner, and up until recently, she was Deputy Chair of Victorian Faculty of the RACGP. She stepped down from this role as she's now a candidate of the RACGP presidential elections. Karen is a PhD candidate at Monash University and is also the co-founder and administrator of GPs Down Under, which is a membership community featuring nearly 8,000 GPs focused on peer learning, peer advocacy, and peer support. Hey, Karen, how are you going? I'm great. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good and excited. You know what? This is like the most exciting part of my week, Karen. I've been looking forward all week to have a chat with you. There are many hats that you wear and all interesting conversations that we can have. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for for coming on. Cool. So, and I was trying to think where to start and and, uh, it would be good actually to to learn a bit more about GPDU. So, uh, a couple of questions around that firstly. GPDU, GPs Down Under, what is that and how did it all start? Well, it's an online forum for, as you said now, 8,000 doctors, and it started way back in 2014 in terms of its actual birth. But I'd say the gestation was a lot longer than that. I've been a clinician for about 20 years then and have been involved in education, both in large conferences and also in small group learnings. I've been an advocate in the Women in General Practice Committees at the RACGP. And there was a lot of discussion about how to get membership engagement. And that wasn't done very well. Communication wasn't done very well. It was sort of like Mm -hmm. great intentions, but they didn't meet in the middle. At the same time, of course, technology is moving on. I mean, when I had my own practice, I project managed the rollout of computerization to reluctant doctors who didn't see the point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was, I've always been involved and interested in technology because I see it as enabling our job. And, and, and you know, if you don't keep up, you'll get left behind. So we'd been practicing on a small online group, Google Hangouts, with some UK and Irish doctors. It was Dr. Tim Senior, who's up in southern highlands of Sydney and a few others and we were just experimenting with this connectivity of the Web2 formats and so the idea of needing communication of the general practice needs which were obvious and the gaps in what was happening, we tried to engage our college in this discussion but at that point social media was, there was some pejorative around the word social Hmm. and because that wasn't real, it wasn't work, which is still somewhat of a, I think, a difficulty for people because we've got a very Western idea of what work is. And we did it ourselves outside of the women in general practice. One of my younger colleagues suggested we just do it for events and networking and that kind of stuff. And I, from my experience and from my emerging academic studies, that wasn't going to work. And so, the framework was already formed in my head for what we needed. I knew what I was doing and away we went. And we used our local networks, which you know, exponential maths, off it goes because it filled a need, because it was easy and uh, because we had a very clear aim and mission, we had a very protected space for doctors, uh, one of which they'd not really had that in an online forum before. People had tried. It was very challenging. Mm. So is that the reason why you think it it grew so quickly? I think we were very clear from the outset, had a very clear idea of what was needed. I had a framework and, and an academic framework about what would probably work 
And we had some really engaged people from the very start. And it wasn't about farming doctors. It wasn't about using them for, you know, pharmaceutical or it wasn't mm. about getting them to, to pay up or anything. It was just about peer learning advocacy and support. Brilliant. Finally, they weren't being used for something else. Right, right. No, I understand. <laughs> no, that's a good feeling. And, and you're right. There are other social channels for doctors and, and some of those have cost a lot of money to build and haven't been as successful as GPs down under. You guys stand out from all of those. Is there... Is that the same reason you think, the the clarity that you've had? I think the flat hierarchy is really important. I've got 10 administrators and other moderators who are very committed to this space. This is a space that doctors and GPs in particular have always had, but it hasn't been made visible. And I think intuitively we understand the purpose of it. We understand the need for it. And we've been pretty much engaged the whole community in the principles of self-moderation and professional behaviour. And, and, of course, we have to at times, people are burned out, people are suffering. Sometimes uh, mm. things go off the rails. But if we're not bringing it back to centre, then other people will be. So there's a commitment to keep the space going because of its inherent value. And, you know, that's been great that everyone owns it. Yeah. From memory, you know, only GPs can join That's you know, GPDU, right? Yep. So, and, and if it's all, it's all just about the peer support and peer learning and stuff like what actually goes on in these communities? What's the secret insights that you can provide about what happens in these sessions? Well, topics of conversation sit within those three pillars. So, there's mm. learning about clinical dilemmas, case studies, there's journal articles, there's lots and lots of things about COVID. I mean, Michael Kidd mm. uh, said to me that when he asked GPs where they got their information, they were saying GPs down under wow. when it was all first going on and that's known about, as well as obviously all the other formal channels. So, it's an informal place for where people can contextualise the knowledge. There's also the advocacy and as you know, or much suspect, doctors, particularly GPs, feel pretty politically isolated at times and so bringing people together to the same table or a series of tables is a very powerful thing. Margaret Mead says a small group of people are the things that have changed the world and that's, I would say, true. And looking at the scientific enlightenment, they had uh, the coffee houses in England and France where people stopped drinking um, <laughs> alcohol, they sobered up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they had these coffee houses and people started having conversations and uh, people did experiments and all sorts of things in, in these places in a, a very flat hierarchy. They called the penny universities and that kind of learning hasn't ever changed mm, and that mm. need for it hasn't ever changed mm, that makes sense hey look moving on karen to the rscgp so you're running for rscg president why is that important yep. to you because i'm really passionate about general practice and the primary care and i believe we need to rebuild our general practice community we need to rethink our branding of the racgp so it becomes a really powerful organization for gps to feel that they belong to it and we need to reward general practitioners for doing an enormous job under very sometimes difficult circumstances. They don't have the support of a large hospital organisation. They're often out there in rural and remote communities, in small family practices, trying their very best to do the very best by their communities, a lifetime of dedication to their patients. And to see how some of the political machinations go, it's such a shame. Mm. The academic information is that primary care health systems deliver the best bang for buck and the World Health Organization certainly made that very explicit and there's lots of research which suggests it. So, when we see defunding, the recent ECG item number and so forth and a Medicare freeze, it's a bit of a conundrum why that would be occurring given that we actually prevent a lot of ongoing cost 
to the health system by preventative healthcare activities. So there's a big need for strong leadership and I think that I've got the skills to do that in terms of bringing people together, enabling a a culture that can actually achieve outcomes. Yeah, no, got it. And and I guess GPs Down Under is kind of like one one of many of those examples of that too. So that's pretty interesting. Um, Yeah, so it's not just talk, it's also the walk. So, you know, I've done it already. (laughs) Yeah, good on you. And if you do become RACG president, what's like the one thing you think you will need to do to be most successful at the gig? I think it's inclusive cooperation. So that means bringing the board online to mission and values of the RECGP and um, not getting involved in any sort of personal or politics or otherwise, Mm. making sure we're delivering on value for members. And that means managing the strategy and vision inside the operations and also managing the outward facing role of the college, which is the education standards, looking after our registrars, looking after our supervisors, looking after GPs, making sure we get the messages very clear clearly from our memberships up into Canberra where we need to be operating as well. So it's a very broad and complex role. The role of the president's not always understood. People often think of it as a king or a queen or an emperor. (laughs) You're one of 14 on a board and you've got to influence that board and so Mm. you need to understand the role of governance. You need to understand the role of culture in achieving outcomes and uh, I think I've got those skills. I think I've demonstrated them and my PhD is around it. So I hope I can achieve something for the members so that we can all deliver great patient care because that's really what for most of us drives our work. Our meaningfulness in work is actually doing a good job with patients. And when Mm. we have a system which is starting to creak and grind and make it difficult to do that, we get very restless and unhappy. You see it amongst teachers when they have uh, poor funding, they get very frustrated and demoralised. And I I don't want to see that happen. Australia has a fantastic health system and to keep it going, we need to have really smart people working together on some really wicked problems uh, across our our country mm. and and the creaking and grinding then of within the the industry or in the gp space i'm going to hazard a guess and say that you like you didn't just decide in the past couple of weeks to go in the running for rscg president but it's something that's been on your mind for a bit like obviously with covid the impact on <laughs> gps around australia do you think covid created new issues within the gp space that you would have to address as rscg president or is it just heightened everything to an extreme oh, i think for sure it's high well it's highlighted like it has for many areas of vulnerability within our community. It's mm. really highlighted how there are many different contexts. It's highlighted the what I call the federated states of dysfunction where we have a, a, a federal system of funding for general practice and we have a state health system which is running the emergency and disaster management for things like the bushfires and they don't necessarily recognise general practice. So the politicians are, are fantastic at being politicians and I know they've got a hard job about trying to manage resources. So I understand that. But what happens is the legislation going across state and federal lines means that general practice often gets forgotten about and left out. So for instance, we're we're trying to source proper PPE to protect doctors. We're trying to make sure all GPs can stay safe and continue their very important work. We're cooperating with our state health. We're delivering health in the state, but we're funded by the federal system. So what happens is we're expected to deliver like a hospital with a public service attitude. And certainly we do. We're mostly very altruistic people, but we're unlike the hospitals, we have to fund that from a private business model, which has been underfunded. So you can already see that there's a moral hazard there. We 
we're putting our lives at risk. We've had to really change around our practices very quickly. We've got reception staff we need to look after. We've got nursing staff we need to look after. We've got our patients that we need to look after. It's been a a great challenge to communicate how different the general practice workspace is from legislative reasons to funding reasons to operational reasons uh, to people who might otherwise operate in the state system. Mm, a lot of complexities there. A lot of complexity. Mm-hmm. Hey, a couple of minutes ago you mentioned your, your PhD. So tell us a bit more about that. What are you researching and, and what have you found? Yeah, my topic is the role of peer connection in Australian general practice. So um, looking at informal learning and how that works and why it works and uh, what goes on within it. So it's uh, been a great topic. It's been, I guess I could say my supervisor calls it my opus, (laughs) (laughs) unlike Mozart. Um, I can't play a tune. (laughs) It is my life's work. I've always run education groups, both small and large. I've always been interested in enabling the conversations that enable us to deliver patient care. So it's grown out of that interest and it's grown out of the great digital communications that we've got now because that's really enabled uh, a bigger reach for what, as I said, we've always done. I mean, if you think about rock paintings, that's a communication strategy. It's Mm. perhaps the first digital tool (laughs) Um, (laughs) where people were communicating in an informal way, an asynchronous way. Look, there's, there's, there's bison down the road here at this point when the sun's in this part of the sky. Mm. So, you know, it's a very established method of learning for humanity. Mm. What about for GPs then in Australia? Are they, like, what have you found? Are they good at sharing? Yeah, they're great at sharing. They're Mm. really good at sharing. Most of them, as I said, they understand this collaborative space. It's the way that we work within our practices. It's just been made visible because it's online. And so they really are fantastic at sharing. And I know when I started in general practice, I had some fabulous mentors constantly sharing knowledge, checking learnings in and out of each other's rooms and telephone calls. I mean, this also goes on in hospitals, Peter. So Mm. this is not unusual. My daughter's in physician training, hopefully to be an endocrinologist one day. But, you know, they do this kind of thing as well. But in general practice, we're a bit isolated. We have one doctor, one patient, one room at one time. And we have to do the whole box and dice in that one 15-minute consultation. So, in hospital, you have morbidity and mortality team meetings. You have physicians interacting with other physicians and registrars who have just come out of their exams. You've got young medical students. You've got nursing staff. You've got a whole multidisciplinary team, which really helps in very co- for some of the very complex cases, helps them formulate management plans and so forth. And we don't really have that very well in general practice. And notwithstanding that in hospitals, that time is paid and in general practice, it's unpaid. So we do all our learning on our own time. For all of my life, there's probably been at least one or two nights a week that I'll be out doing medical education, sharing work, sharing knowledge. And I don't know how many conferences we end up going to, but there's quite a few more in-depth conferences, often weekends because people won't take time off during the week because we're private businesses like tradies. We lose money if we don't go to work. So often those are on weekends. So people are really dedicated to their craft. They want to be good at it. We're a bit driven, I guess, as people. So we like to be good at what we do. We don't like to feel like we're not performing. I think it's, again, hard for people in the hospital system to understand perhaps that we've got some barriers to some of that informal learning and that information that drives some of the performances. Yeah. It helps the performance. Yeah. And peer-to-peer being so central to, to GP world and, and the clinical environment, and then you've got on the other side the way everything's changing in the world in terms of how we're getting information, how much free information is available now, and how yeah. that kind of exchanges through professions. How does that all balance out? Where's that all going to end up, do you think? <laughs> 
well, most of us will try and at some point switch it off and go to sleep. That would mm. be a good way. <laughs> <laughs> got enough emails about COVID. But We've yeah. got, there's, a, there's always been those great memes, you know, with a fire hose on full bore and yeah. someone trying to drink out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's the tsunami of information is a real challenge for everybody. And you can see it in this COVID pandemic, the general public trying to develop some health literacy over what to do, mm. who to trust. And unfortunately, information becomes politicised. Information does have a power gradient and it's very difficult for people. It's very difficult for all people, doctors, specialists, GPs, everybody, to keep up with really good factual information. Science means that information changes all the time and we've seen how we have to live with a certain amount of uncertainty. We have to be practised at living with, okay, for the moment, this is our commitment to COVID. Oh, hang on, next week it's changed. And we have to keep adapting. And I think if we can just frame this as a a challenge to our behavioural models because we love certainty. Mm. We love the snake oil salespeople because they give us certainty. Take (laughs) this root of, I don't know, licorice and away you go. And Mm. my aunt had this and she lived to 120. Mm. So, lovely certainty, but science doesn't operate that way. Mm. And Mm. I think one of the big issues that this pandemic has showed is the need for trusted health information for doctors. We're cooperating with our public health physicians. They have a very different, they have a population-based way of interpreting health. And we've got our infectious diseases physicians who are keeping up with the latest international efforts on research on COVID. And we've got to interpret all that and get the latest because it changes for us too. And then we've got to bring it back into our clinics and then hopefully interpret it for patients. Now, we are a trusted source of information for patients. It's important that they can have access to that information and not because they'll have their informal networks of learning and it's about establishing what is credible and in a science field and in a rapidly changing field like COVID, that's been really difficult. I really think the loss of some of the continuity of care that we've seen with COVID, with patients staying away from general practice, has not helped patients get trusted information. And I think we're an underutilised resource of public health. We could be really helping deliver that message over and over again to our patients. Every single consultation, Peter, I have patients asking me, even though they've seen it on TV and the chief medical officers have done a fantastic job, even Mm. though they've seen it, they've heard it, they come back to us and say, what do I need to do in my situation? Yeah, right. <laughs> Can you yeah, put this all into, like, contextualise it for some, yeah. It's just, it's this tsunami of information is yes. too much. Yes. No, that makes sense. And I'll contextualise it. So, I'll talk differently to someone who's a young uni student than I will to someone who's 85, mm. who may or may not have that formal education. So, you've got to really tailor your information and that's mm. quite a skill and, and GPs have that skill. Yeah, it's a lot to take on and a lot of responsibility and can be pretty tiring, I imagine, too, after a long period of time. Oh, yeah. Hey, just, just thinking back to CPD for a second, and the I think you're suggesting as well, it's a big investment for, for doctors and can be costly and time-consuming and you're spending a lot of extra time doing that. And, and at the same time, you've got GPs down under and speaking about social media earlier on about how, you know, yep. it's, it's I guess, increasing in terms of its um, acceptance, but it's still kind of there's levels of kind of- uh, Acceptability. Yeah. Acceptability of socials. I, where, where do you think socials is going to go in terms of CPD and its role within it? it can it play a bigger part in how CPD is consumed and the impact on the costs and the time and everything like that? A really interesting discussion because there are formal CPD providers and that information is really useful and important. 
But we know from research that it doesn't always meet general practitioners' needs. There's some well-established studies. I know Paul Glassew out at Bond Uni is working mm. on this information need gap. Mm-hmm. And what's delivered formally may not be meeting the um, requirements in practice. So how do you develop a curriculum when any patient who comes in could have something different and new? I think the socials are a complementary form of informal learning to formal learning. It's an adaptive response to what we're taught and it's a helpful thing to contextualise it. So my response to a particular medical condition will be different to someone's response who's working out in remote outback South Australia. You know, even though we've got the same knowledge, we'll be delivering it in a different way and we'll be and implementing the outcomes in a very different way. Mm. So we've got to contextualise our work because we actually have a practical work. It's not just intellectual work. It's a practical we actually have to deliver. So... I think socials have got a – I think there needs to be a, a change. Now, the problem is there's a political issue here because formalised CPD programs make people money. You know, it's a business yep. and no, nothing wrong with business. And, you know, doctors are increasingly under financial pressure, GPs, and particularly part-time GPs. We forget that, you know, 65% or so of new entries into general practice are women and also some of the men are because – Thankfully, younger men are participating more in caring roles. So, their income may not be the same and their ability, therefore, to have discretionary spend on education items Mm. may be less. And it's often an assumption that everyone's rich (laughs) (laughs) and it's not necessarily so. And this provides a way for some very marginalised and very isolated doctors to participate in education. And I've certainly seen that online. I've seen doctors from remote areas, doctors who are newly arrived in Australia who are working under the moratorium and so forth who need contextualisation of the information and they may not have the time or the money to spend on formal programs. Mm. So there does need to be a recognition and there is on a self-report function of the college for doctors to include this as part of their education yeah yeah no fair enough interesting oh it'll be, it'll be fun to see how that kind of plays out over the coming years too because it's a, it's a real challenge well, there's, yeah it is a real challenge and of course all education takes time and commitment to deliver so nothing mm. is ever free because this is given within a community of doctors there is a there's a time and cost to people delivering it but i think if there's a big enough community then that's shared and distributed so it's not so onerous perhaps Interesting. Hey, so just changing tracks a little bit then, thinking about the generally the GP patient relationship, a really important relationship, obviously, within the uh, general practice space. What do you see some of the biggest challenges are in that GP patient relationship today? I think one of the biggest risks to medicine in general, and I've seen this in the medical defence insurers who are recognising this as a big risk, is the commercialisation of healthcare. And that means that there's a potential for many players and fragmentation of that relationship. And yet we know from research that the therapeutic alliance between a GP, a longitudinal therapeutic relationship delivers the outcomes of morbidity and mortality. We know that relationship is what motivates patients to largely be compliant. As you've heard me talk about the trust and the ability of a GP to understand a a patient's context, that they're really important bits of learning and bits of knowledge that are often held in my head. Like I've got patients who I see the mother, the father and the kids and the grandkids. Hmm. I know this family really well. I know how they operate and I know how and what's going on for them. So I'm able to respond in a, in a much, I don't write that down in notes because that's not 
that's tacit mm. learning. It's not stuff mm. that you necessarily, but it really helps deliver the outcomes. Even if they've been to a specialist, I think most GPs have had the experience with their long-term chronic complex patients. They come back from the specialist or the hospital stay and they say, what happened to me? Or I didn't understand a word he said, or do I have to undergo this procedure? I don't understand my medications and so forth. And we pick up that role all the time. And without that continuity of care, we're going to, um, we know from the research that the costs of GDP of health spend will go up significantly. Mm. So it's really important to protect the general practice role. Now, we don't always talk about relationships because it seemed to be soft skills. And I, I'm sorry, you can't see it, but my, my, when people say soft skills, my head spins around um, <laughs> because they're not soft. They're really not soft. If, you know, we can put people on the moon, we can send them up to Mars, but we still can't solve the Middle East. We still, you know, are having trouble getting our family all around the dinner table at festive times and talk politely. These skills are hard. They're the hardest skills we have as human beings. They, they can wreak great havoc upon people in all sorts of horrendous ways. We can certainly power a rocket to the moon and, and use wonderful physics to to power us all up there, but they're not soft skills trying but to get we'll, on with us. Will we all get along when we're up there? That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, locked on a space station. I mean, oh my God, they must have its challenges. <laughs> yeah, so is it still required? There you go. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Just on that point then about the GP-patient relationship then, and something that came to mind is around the hot topic of the I'm going to say quarter, like year, I guess, being telehealth in GP, you know, obviously an emerging area that's just kind of blasted onto everyone's face due to COVID and other reasons. And there are those that, you know, see many telehealth providers being opportunistic about potentially uh, circumventing the patient-GP relationship or pulling things away from being a core GP. You know, and and so that's a challenge. There's been some, you know, response from Medicare in relation to the funding around that and, and thoughts around the RICGP currently have been heard. From your perspective, what do you see then just more broadly about telehealth, the future, the challenges and the whatevers of telehealth in GP now? Yeah. Well, look, telehealth, everyone's sort of salivating over the digital revolution and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? We've always done it. At least Mm. I have. I've always um, allowed selected patients to contact me using different digital media, depending on their comfort and obviously consented. Doctors, from even before uh, computers were communicating with their patients by telephone, we did all this all the time mm. and obviously we had to keep it to a minimum because you, you don't certainly want to be spending all your time on the phone if you've got four patients waiting. But now we've got a formalised system which recognises that this is work mm. and that it's very important work during a pandemic to keep people safe, both doctors and patients. And it, it certainly has a flow on in terms of productivity. So if you're at work, you can call your doctor and schedule an appointment that you, you know, you might not be sure if you need to see them or not, but you can actually schedule that telehealth consultation and work out whether or not you do need to come in or not. I think the requirement to follow up with a face-to-face consult is really important because that really is about making sure we don't lose continuity of care. There's always this idea that there's a convenience issue, but I think if patients you know, a long time ago always had their own, own doctor, I think we need to look at that more closely and this allows people to do that. I mean, I've had people even text me when they're overseas (laughs) (laughs) from a long way away. So, there's a way of keeping in contact. And if it really is too difficult, if someone does move to way out wherever, I will endeavour to find them a doctor that I know of who I feel they'll be comfortable with. So, it, it reduces the distance, it reduces time, it keeps the continuity. And as I said with that 
family where I know three generations, I have that information. I know exactly what they're talking about when they're telling me about their symptoms. I know how to fit it into the whole context of their overall health profile. If I see another patient who I don't know um, on the phone, it is a much more difficult consultation. And I think universally doctors find that because we don't have that tacit information of knowing them over several years and knowing their responses, knowing their peculiarities about how they respond to information or illness. And yeah. so it's it's an important part. Telehealth is fantastic. And interestingly, again, as a digital revolution, for the most part, it's been the telephone because that's where the digital revolution in patients is up to. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, I do get people bringing in their photos on their iPhones and stuff, and um, I certainly know doctors have set up their Zoom for some more literate patients, depending on your practice profile. Mm. But these are mostly patients who've got complex chronic health conditions. They're often very vulnerable and marginalised, agoraphobic patients who've got panic disorder, who can't leave the home. These aren't people who've got a huge number of resources mm. that are assumed by people who've perhaps come from a middle-class background. These are people who are really vulnerable, and this has enabled us to keep in touch with them and keep mm. them going through this really rather dreadful time. Mm. Just onto the point about the, for want of a better term, the worried well. Th- those that, are, no, thinking more broadly then. Um, well, the worried well is ang- anxiety, so. I probably used the wrong term then, but that's good. So the, <laughs> I'm known to jump on people for that term. <laughs> that's good. That's good. It keeps me on my toes. But look, health literacy then, health literacy in Australia, and, and patients are taking, generally are taking a more active role in or an interest in their health. There's, there's technology making more information available. Um, prior to seeing a GP, I think mm, a lot of people would Google stuff before they come and see the doctor and say, what do you think of what I found as opposed to what is wrong with me? Like, Does this present opportunities or problems in your opinion? I love it. I love it mm. when they're engaged and interested in their health and they bring me in, well, in the old days, they'd bring in a newspaper clipping, but now they might bring up something they've seen on the net yeah, or okay. whatever. And again, they ask me because I have an established relationship with them, mm. what do I think about it? Now, you know, I've had patients with really rare diseases where together we've navigated this new and unusual disease and that person's gone on to be a great advocate for that particular disease and ended up setting up through the local major tertiary hospital in my area, a um, patient support group in that particular disease. So, you know, we partnered with her. I'm not going to say that. I think the most dangerous doctor is the one or health professional is the one who says, oh, I, who can't say, I don't know. They're mm. partnering with our patients on, on that healthcare journey and helping them interpret and helping them learn is, I think, one of them, for me anyway, it's the most rewarding part of practice. Mm. It's a really enjoyable thing. So, I have no problem with people talking about what they've learned, what they know, what they understand and working together on because I've got a perspective and I've obviously got the training to be able to put that into a, a framework that makes their healthcare accessible. Got it. No, that makes sense. It's a good position. I like that. And so the other thing I wanted to touch on too, it, like it wouldn't be a discussion about digital health unless someone said interoperability. It seems to be the most <laughs> frequently used term, I guess, by the ADHA or, or anyone at the policy level oh, when speaking God, I about- I got hearing that word. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to fix digital health, Karen, didn't you hear? So if you had to do, to define, like what does interoperability even mean to you and what does that kind of solution even look like? Oh, well, from a systems point of view, it's it's about, isn't it, about technology fitting together and seamlessly delivering, isn't it, and connecting in its little bits of electronic information and sending packets of information along in a seamless way. I think, though, that's a task. It's very linear thinking, mm. which is very attractive. It's very simple. But if we look at it from a complex adaptive systems, if you know complexity theory, which is another mathematical theorem, then it's not that simple. And I think interoperability needs to be 
expanded perhaps in an implementation way to human systems. And then we start really getting into into challenging situations and complex situations. And it makes it hard. Trish Greenhaug, who's a Oxford University professor of primary care has written lots of papers on this and she talks about muddling through complex technological systems for the delivery of of healthcare outcomes and the implementation is a challenge and we have to muddle through. We have to look at this, it doesn't work. Okay, look at that, that does work. We make another little stride but if we don't work together, the tech people and the doctors who have to deliver and the patients who, who must be involved in this design then we're going to lose out. If it's just technological solutions, they may not fit. They may not fit appropriately. They may, mm-hmm. You're going to miss out. And I think we've just got to understand we're in a rapidly changing world. We will be adapting all the time. We'll be integrating all the time. I mean, I don't know how old you are, Peter, but... Old enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the change in the way banking's done. So, we went through this thing where we could do all our banking online and we had ATMs then replacing bank tellers and there was lots of doom yeah. and gloom about what was going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And we went down that road and all became very technical. And then what they found was they really needed to re-bring back in the personal touch. And so, now we've got more personal banking. We've got people meeting other people at the front of the bank and they've realised you can't take the human and just replace it completely with the technical. Mm-hmm. And that's because when we look at human systems, there there's a large focus on the technical, a large focus on the outcome, and there's very little visibility of the psychodynamics and the relational work that goes on. And that's mm-hmm. Because we perhaps take relationships for granted, human relationships. I don't mean familial relationships. I mean the relationships we have with our providers of banking or technology or healthcare or or food service, whatever it is. They're really Mm. important. Mm. I think as well because the technology side is really important to like if you've got a lot of people doing a process that can be automated through technology, then it seems almost like a no-brainer to have the technology do a lot of the work. But then as a- Very industrialised thinking, isn't it? Uh, and then, but then, but then you've got like the people who are feeding the information, the consumers, the patients, the, the customers, say for the bank or for the the, the healthcare provider. The, the more the technology is involved, the more that person needs to kind of comprehend and understand that. And then you need the person involved to be able to then contextualize it and put it in perspective. So I yeah. think there's always going to be that. So balance. we've got to work with technology. We've got to be really careful that we don't just rely on these algorithms. There's a lot of research going on about the bias within algorithms. There's the whole idea that technology can become a tyranny because we can respond to what we can measure and Mm. then becomes if we can't measure it, it can't be important. And if Mm. we can't measure it and it's not important, then that whatever it is, that complex thing disappears. So, Mm. look at the way that in aged care, it was seen to be just a series of tasks that could be replaced by cheaper and cheaper staff. And that's not the case. And we've got a big problem in aged care because we, we've reduced health to a series of tasks and linear constructs. And it is much more complicated than that. Care is important. The way that we are motivated, our altruism in doing our jobs, the way a teacher delivers their teaching. It's, it's not even, you know, you can have two teachers delivering the same lesson and you'll have two different outcomes. There's, yeah. there's a, there are immeasurable things that mm. we have in our community that we shouldn't lose. And we, we need to be cognizant of that. We need to be thinking about that. We need to have multidisciplinary teams implementing these things so that we can think about the ethics, we can think about the power structures, we can think about the human systems as well as the technological expertise. Now, I don't think there's any one person who has expertise across all of those areas, but we need to be listening to each other so that we get a really good outcome for our community or we are going to leave people behind. Yeah. And that's going to be to our 
entire detriment, as we can see in a pandemic. We leave people behind. Hey, guess what? It doesn't work out for the rest of us because we are an interconnected society and a yeah. world. Yeah. It's a good way to circle back into it and, and to, to close things out, Karen. Of all the research and, and the reading of GPs, I mean, like in Australia and, and, and abroad, GPs are overworked and exhausted, even before COVID and, and now especially, that's a common issue. What advice would you give to any GPs that are on the front line in Australia, perhaps listen to the podcast, who are feeling overwhelmed and had enough right about now? I think to remember your humanity, to to see that you and and acknowledge and honour your own humanity and treat yourself with the same levels of dignity and respect you would treat a patient. And when we talk mm. about bringing your oxygen mask down and putting it on first, it's really important in any caring role, whether you are a, a nursing healthcare worker or pharmacy or GP or teacher, you need to be in a really good place to be able to deliver on good outcomes. And so if you're not in that space you need to think about how you can set some limits, perhaps, if you're able to. If you can reach out for care, join GPs down under where you'll find lots of colleagues. Reach out to your own GP. Every doctor should have their own GP. Every teacher, nurse, <laughs> pharmacist, specialist, every podcast producer, Peter, should have their own <laughs> GP. <laughs> so, to not be ashamed of our vulnerability as humans because it's the system that we're living in. It's a very complex, very mobile, rapidly changing system. We've got a lot of pressures on us and we, we need to rebuild that system for humans so that we, we can thrive. And that means we have to really think very deeply about who we're leaving behind and our own self-care and our own ability to be generous. And if we're not generous with each other, then why have we lost that capacity? It's a really interesting question. And I think having some reflection on your own wellness, on your own self about where you're up to is really important. And if you're in a situation where that's constantly on empty, then you need to really make some changes in some way. And if you're not able to see how to do that, then reach out. There are people who will help you. And it's the most freeing thing in the world to be a vulnerable human because we all are. We all get sick. We all have challenges. We'll all get old, hopefully, if we're lucky. <laughs> and, you know, it's important to understand that perhaps most of what you see on the media and everything is only really a tiny fraction of our real mm. selves as humans. Mm. What a nice message to end it on. And, and we'll have to end it there, Karen. But I'm going to put all the, the resources and conversation points that we had from the episode in the show notes of this podcast that people can go in and click through and, and check out more. Karen, good luck with everything later this month. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.